I love that last song that we sing. There are some, there are some Sundays where I just wish it was all worship. And that last song, I, I feel the presence of God here. When we sing, what a beautiful name it is. There is this, this growing sense that I have felt for a while that God is starting to build this as a sanctuary of holiness. That this is becoming a kind of like a large altar of praise. And um, it is so exciting to feel that on a Sunday morning, to be with you all and to feel the praise rise up to the heavens and to hear God here with us speaking. The book of James is deceptively small, isn't it? But it's a hefty letter the longer you, you let it sink in. As Adam introduced it last week, I hope you had a chance to dive in and get your feet wet, to get reacquainted with it if you haven't read it before, or to, uh, to start it if this is your first time. It's a rich letter to believers at the dawn of the church that appears like wisdom literature, but as we'll talk about today, it asserts its own theological weight as well. Last week, Adam talked about the process of teaching a child to cross the street. We teach them to stop, to look, to listen, to think, and then to go ahead and walk. And as we discussed last week, the life of a Christian is a calling to approach the world and the voice of God in a similar way. When we approach the world as a believer, the letter of James implores us not to live out of our old ways, but to stop and invite the presence of God into every interaction and situation we encounter and have. This entire letter is filled with strong statements of what faith and religion are to look like when God is reigning in our hearts as believers. It is a tough letter to swallow sometimes because it convicts us. And as I've read it again in this study, I've felt that conviction very freshly. A story to start. When I was in my undergraduate education, I joined my college's InterVarsity chapter, which is a college ministry that's across the country, for those of you who don't know it. Um, and you can talk to Luke if you'd like to get, learn more about that. Um, it was a fresh experience for me at the time because it was the first time I had stepped out of my context as a young man growing up in upper middle class Southern California and in a suburban church that was made up almost entirely of people like me. It was also the first time I'd encountered others who expressed their faith differently than I did. The first time I met people from very different denominations than me, and the first time I was in a diverse community of believers seeking Christ together. Looking back, I will confess, I did not handle that maturely. And it's one of the few regrets I have in life. When anything challenged what I experienced while I was growing up, I reacted with cynicism and bitterness. I've relied on many of my received understandings of the world that I had absorbed growing up with people who were exactly like me and in my Christian culture. And I rejected ideas without opening my heart to hear what God might be saying through others. Specifically, I reacted strongly to the pronounced shift in my chapter toward a seeking of a theology of ethnic and social diversity by dismissing it as not the point of the gospel and shutting my ears to any discussion. And it actually still hurts to confess that. I created a lot of bitterness between myself and other leadership in my chapter because I was scared of something I didn't understand and that was new to me. Now hear me. 
My regret does not come from not accepting a particular theological ideology simply because others believed in it, but rather in my conduct in the opportunity to grow and to learn. And in reality, it was one of the first times in my young Christian life that I was invited by God to stop, to listen, to look, to think, and to be invited into a deeper understanding of the global body of Christ. And I now count it as a moment where I stepped into traffic, proverbially, without waiting on the Lord instead. I tell this story because as I read the letter from James to the church, I see parts of myself all over chapter 2. At the beginning of the chapter, James points out that believers he writes to are reported as giving privilege and preference to the wealthy among them and shoving the poor in their gatherings into spaces of insignificance and diminishment. The believers who read this were allegedly telling others who weren't well-dressed to sit on the floor when they met. Imagine for a minute hosting a dinner party and you've got a diverse set of friends and you're inviting friends from all over the different backgrounds of the people you know. And at one point when the guests are getting seated, you notice that one of your friends who doesn't quite belong in this, in this scenario has taken a seat at the head of the table. And as a lot of us know, that's kind of a place of importance. And a friend that you have with political connections who drove up in their BMW, no offense to BMW owners, <laughs> is having a hard time finding a seat. So as discreetly as you can, you go over to your friend at the head of the table who doesn't belong in that crowd, and you ask that person to move, ushering your rich friend to the prime spot at that table to let them know that their presence is valued. This actually makes sense in a way, in a fear-based mentality. And that is what James is talking about here. To some degree, we are all guilty of this kind of behavior. And furthermore, he calls it evil. Which is not a word we say a lot around here. <laughs> and that's the key here, though. This letter is full of wise rebukes that run entirely counter to the way human wisdom would have us operate. And they are spoken of harshly. There are strong statements that James levies on those who judge others use their tongues unwisely, or are quick to anger. James 2.10 hits this bluntly when he writes, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. When I read some of these verses, it's actually challenging to find hope and grace in the writing at times because James makes it clear that even for believers, there are consequences when we march forward in human wisdom without stopping for God to pour out his truth into our hearts. When I allow myself to be honest about who I am, and I'll confess in front of all of you, I still see moments 20 years on in my faith where I judge others or react quickly in anger. No matter how much work I've done with the Lord, thank God for grace. And in that story that I told, I pushed others away out of a refusal to deal with the dissonance of Christian frameworks that threatened my own. 
I refuse to love my neighbor by listening, processing, and journeying alongside them to seek God's truth together. In this, I demonstrated the fragility of my faith. I clung to what I needed to be true out of fear, and I judged parts of the gospel and those who championed them as irrelevant and lesser than me. I neglected that Christianity doesn't stop when you receive salvation. I'll say that again. I neglected that Christianity does not stop when you receive salvation. It is an ongoing process of cleansing, of growing, of pruning, and of healing in grace that empowers believers to take part in God's plan. And James does provide a hint at what empowers us as we continue in the letter. I'm going to read aloud the second half of chapter 2, starting with verse 14. And if you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along with me. I'll be reading from the NIV. We pick up here after James has spoken of all these various patterns of behavior that in chapters 1 and 2 that the believers were reverting to in this early church. And I invite you, as you listen, for you as well, to stop, listen, and think with fresh ears to what God might be saying through his word today. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And his faith was made complete by what he did. This is a tough text. There is a lot of writing on it, (laughs) which I read. One of the major criticisms of this text, particularly in the history of the Protestant Reformation, is that the language appears to speak about works as the basis for our salvation. It runs counter to what a lot of us have learned from Paul when he states in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." That's usually what's preached in an evangelical sermon or memorized in a youth group. I don't ever remember memorizing, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Because it is an inconvenient text, and it's challenging. Should we see these as opposing texts? And is James continuing to drive home his point that even when we call ourselves Christians, we are unsaved unless we perform specific works? Does this mean that the Bible is contradicting itself? I want to argue today that I don't think that's what James is after. With this following all of the wisdom literature of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, what do we think James is then getting at? When Jesus confronts the Pharisees in Matthew 7, he gives a similar message when he says, Not everyone who says to me, 
Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. These are sometimes scary texts that can fill us with uncertainty, but I think a key to understanding these verses is, as I said before, that Jesus is not just after us for our ultimate salvation. He doesn't just save us and bounce. When we accept him, we are accepting something more than a ticket to paradise. And what is that? In John 3, Jesus gives us a clue that might help us understand a little. He says that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That term, born again. The underlying understanding of it is that when we accept the Lord as our Savior, there is a radical transformation that takes place that makes us into something new, something other, something powered by something bigger. When we sing songs like Spirit Break Out with lyrics like the, heaven, like the sound of heaven touching earth, we're not just singing about a moment where salvation arrives for a new believer, and that's it. We're talking about the church partnering in the miracle power of God in an ongoing basis to provide healing and redemption, justice and peace in the earth. Now, here. When James argues to the believers that their works showed their faith, he is not making a statement in support of works-based salvation theology. And I want to reiterate that you cannot earn the love of God. We know that elsewhere in Scripture. Instead, the works he talks about are evidence that that heaven has touched earth in the believers' lives, enabling them to engage with all these other wise sayings in a meaningful, new, authentic way, and importantly, guided by the Holy Spirit. The believers who show true, deep, authentic faith demonstrate through their works that they are slaves not to the world that they have left behind, but slaves to Christ, as Paul put it. And those works come out of that motivation and that story of redemption. So when we look, stop, and listen in our daily lives, we are inviting God to speak in us through the Holy Spirit. And we are inviting through his authentic act of faith, this authentic act of faith, a touch of heaven to pour out to those around us through us. N.T. Wright argues that God's kingdom is being launched on earth as it is in heaven. And the way it will happen is by God working through people. After all, so often when people look out on the world and the disasters around it, they wonder, why doesn't God just march in and take over? Why doesn't he send a thunderbolt and put things right? The answer is that God does send a thunderbolt, a human one. So how do we apply this in seeking the authentic belief in Christ? How do we liberate ourselves from the judgment of the law? James' story of partiality towards the rich gives us a little bit of a clue. Those who live by faith operate as a part of God's kingdom and say they will, they will often swim against the grain of the society they're immersed in as evidence of their transformation, I'll add. Though it's perfectly logical to make room for the influential woman in the man, or man at the table of God's in the world's wisdom, 
God's wisdom runs by a different economy of self-sacrifice and love, not an economy of fear. Often it's the thing waiting on the other side of your discomfort. I know we've heard this preached here before, but the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I understand that an authentic walk of faith is just over the boundaries of what I'm willing to do for God. It's whatever pulls me out of my complacency. Because that's where the enemy wants to keep me. Living a rote religious life. And that's not what God has called us into. God has called us, called us through his transforming faith into something else. Maybe it's stepping in with a prophetic word for someone when we're stuck in, in um, sorry, when you're walking down the street or extending hospitality to someone you disagree with, inviting someone over that you know has different political views or religious views than you. A quick example of this kind of walk of faith is this. The next time you're in a conversation and you find yourselves about to say, I'll be praying for you, take a moment to pull the person aside and to offer to pray right there. And I'm guilty of this. Last week, I said to someone in this room, I'll be praying for you. And I regretted it immediately. I should have said, can I pray for you right now? That is the kind of authentic living that James is talking about. Because you're removing the temptation in these things, as James said, to say, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed. None of these acts or works are your salvation. But today is the day to rededicate yourself to living filled, to living on mission, powered by a fresh wave of God's power. Because when you offer yourselves as the hands and feet of God in your world, even in the most ordinary moments, I can promise you will find he will take you up on that offer. I want to spend a little time today in closing to pray for those of you here who want to understand what it is like to feel like one of God's thunderbolts, to feel sent. And I want us to reflect for a moment in quiet before the band comes up. Do you feel like one of God's thunderbolts? Do you feel sent and sent by God? When you step into your daily life, do you live out of the redemptive faith that James admonishes us to have? And is it transforming you? When you face a situation in your life where you are confused, a situation where you need wisdom, a situation where you're challenged by something, when you're faced with trials, do you rely on the wisdom of the world? Or do you stop, listen, think, and wait on the Lord? Asking him to speak and to pray, and to pray for wisdom and how to act. I often think back to the conversations I had in college and I wonder how God might have used me if I had put down my battle axes and let him speak. If I had taken my walls of bitterness, placed them down, and allow his voice to speak to me. I wonder who I could have reached 
I wonder what kind of grace I could have experienced. And today, if there are situations like that in your life, it's time to put those walls down. So we're going to pray today for understanding and wisdom and for his voice to speak to you so that you are empowered to walk in his will. That is the authentic faith that invites heaven to come down. And that is the way of life that partners with God. As Adam prayed earlier, um, if, it's, if it's kind of different for you to hear from God, to hear a voice from God, if that's not something you're acquainted with, we have people here who can talk to you about what that's like. Um, but I also want us to pray for you, to spend a little bit of time in prayer for you to hear for the first time. And for those of you who are looking for wisdom, looking to seek his will, looking to put those walls down, to hear him in difficult, difficult circumstances, I want to pray for blessing over you as well. So will you stand? If there are members of the prayer team here, um, I want to ask that we be available for either on the wings or um, if you lift your hands, we will also pray for you. But um, I, w- I want us to pray or for the people around us that they experience this as well. So Lord, as the music starts, I just thank you. Um, I thank you for the space that we have today to worship to experience your voice. God, we know that when we praise you, there's a sweet incense that rises that is pleasing to you. Part of what we were created to do is to praise. And in praising, we partner with you. We encounter you. When we encounter you, God, we know that we never leave unchanged. So today I pray for fresh encounter. God, I know in the, middle of, um, in the middle of this season that we've been in, there is a lot, of a, a lot of feelings of being lost, of having lost purpose, of having the tables turned, of having things just upside down and not feeling rooted. Today, Lord, I ask that you would root us, that you would ground us in your love, that your voice would speak. that your voice would speak not just generally, but specifically, God, to give purpose, to give mission, to show us how to live authentically in you. For those who are not currently walking in a way that, um, where, they, where they are hearing you actively, Lord, we pray right now that those who are willing to receive your voice would hear As I say that, I, I actually see doves just flooding in through the doors and landing on those who are willing to receive. The Spirit is falling, and His voice is coming. And for those who are feeling lost, God, would you empower us to stop, to look around, to listen for your voice? to seek your face as the prophets did. If that's you today, just raise your hands. 
to pray for you. You are not lost when God is by your side. Let him root you today. Feel safe in his presence. Lord, we need you.